0: it emerged late last week that Martin Devlin had been off the air on NewsTalk ZB after throwing a punch at one of his colleagues and sending an inappropriate email uh, to another and he returned to his show on Saturday with this note of contrition
1: First I can't start this afternoon's program without quickly acknowledging the story that made big time news yesterday it's all on the New Zealand Herald and And plenty of other news sites around New Zealand if you're interested in reading the gory details. I let myself, I let my family, I let my friends, I let my employers and I let all of you who listen to this program down. And it's not the first time.
0: So that's Martin Devlin and he went on for a little bit in that fashion and he went on to conclude his apology with this slightly jarring transition.
1: And my employers, my family, people I've just mentioned, I will come through this. I will come through this. Please I ask you to respect the fact that I'm not going to talk about it on air anymore, and I'm not going to mention it. I'm not going to take any any calls on it or anything like that. This is a sports show. That's what we do. We're into sport, and let's kick it. Let's do it. My DRS has had some stuff ups, but that one there just defies all logic.
0: That was Mun Devlin on Saturday uh, in a statement that NZME and he probably hoped would put a lid on the story. And has it? It has not. Stuff printed a story about the colleague who was on the receiving end of Devlin's punch attempt and that person is reportedly unhappy with NZME's investigation into that incident which was led by the company's chief of radio, Wendy Palmer. And so that person's representative, uh, Shane Tapoe, reportedly was reported by Stuff to have had a meeting with the NZME managing editor Shane Curry this week. And that journalist isn't alone in being dissatisfied with NZME's internal accountability processes here. Actually, the NZME journalist Katie Harris reported on a woman who complained about that aforementioned inappropriate email she received from Devlin, and uh, she was told it would be passed on to HR. She never heard back from HR, and she now doesn't believe that her complaint was handled adequately.
2: So there's obviously some dissatisfaction with how NZME have handled this situation.
0: Yeah, and it's not just that, but the fact that they stonewalled these journalists from stuff, and then of course a you know, fulsome apology statement was ready to go from Martin Devlin there. This is a kind of damage control tactics that they'll probably disparage in another organisation. They're doing it here. Probably more than that, there is some dissatisfaction out there that Martin Devlin, he still has a job, he's still on air. That's particularly given, as he mentioned in his apology, that this isn't the first time he had to give an apology in 2019 as well, after he had a derogatory on rant about the journalist Madeleine Chapman, uh, who took a banner to a Black Cats match protesting Scott Kugeline's inclusion in the team. He was also charged with disorderly conduct in 2011 after a public dispute with his wife. So it, it appears that besides all that, NZME has now set the Bar for dismissal somewhere higher than taking a swing at a co worker and sending others inappropriate emails. It's either that or they have different standards for the devlins of the world than they do for their other staff. So that prompted staff investigative journalist and former, recent former NZ media employee Kirsty Johnston to tweet pretty incredulously that's about everything you need to know about how far we've come on the Me Too front in NZ.
2: Uh, This is coming at a time when other radio stations are being criticised for their culture.
0: Yeah, it's not a great time in NZ Radio. A lot of stories coming out all at once. This is definitely not the only one. We had One News, Kristen Hall, reporting on an alleged culture of bullying at MediaWorks, uh, which runs the other half of the country's commercial radio stations. And as part of that series, Hall reported on I mean, you'd call it at best ill-considered stunt called The Masked Single on the radio station, The Edge. And in it, a woman was told she was being set up on dates with prospective partners they had masks on. They weren't actual prospective partners. They were just MediaWorks interns, and she wasn't told that. She felt like it was a cruel joke. She wasn't (laughs) about to find love. This actually reminds me, I don't know if anyone remembers this, text in if you do, text Karen, of, of the New Zealand reality TV show Living the Dream, where there was a protagonist, and he was the only one that was not an actor, and everyone around him was an actor, and he wasn't told. Of course, at the end of that, TV show, uh, this guy his catchphrase was crikey I believe uh, he won $50,000 and this woman apparently didn't get any money and seems to have just got uh, heartbreak and embarrassment, so there, well, that's not all. There was also a Herald story about RNZ, which revealed that five people have been accused of sexual harassment, sexual misconduct or sexism in the last five years at this station. And this has all prompted media commentator and former Herald editor Gavin Ellis to write that our radio industry needs a culture change. And he argues that the industry needs to stop feeding what he calls the ego monster, which allows some of its biggest stars to act inappropriately with virtual impunity. And on that front, he actually points to MediaWorks as a sign of hope, because its chief executive, Cam Wallace, has at least commissioned an external culture review by Maria Jew QC. Uh, It seems that stuff is now asking NZME to follow suit and do its own external review. It hasn't responded to those uh, pleas or those questions about that possibility. It remains to be seen whether it will outsource its own investigation to someone outside the tent, someone other than its own chief of radio.
2: It was Martin Devlin and NZME and those emails that allegedly uh, had content that was... Um, I, I don't really know what the word is, because has anybody seen those emails?
0: They're described in Katie Harris's story about it. You can read it on The Herald, to its credit, reporting on its own you know, within its own stable. It, it was at the time that the Russell McVeigh controversy was happening, and he used uh, some terminology that called that uh, scandal into the mind of the person receiving the email. He said, "Oh you know don't, don't 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 ignore this if it comes off as sort of creepy senior partner or whatever." that kind of thing. You can read the story, it has the full details.
2: Drama in the world of US journalism there
0: always is, isn't there? Yeah, this is another one that has caught my eye. It might not have necessarily registered with some of the listeners, but earlier this month, just as background, a pretty obscure Twitter account, the Stanford University GOP Twitter account shared some old pro-Palestinian tweets from a young journalist called Emily Wilder. And she'd, she the reason they did this is she'd recently been hired by AP, and some of these tweets were a little derogatory. She'd called the Republican billionaire Sheldon Adelson uh, a naked, someone that looks like a naked mole rat. She pretty accurately said there was no shortage of opinion pieces calling right-leaning commentator Ben Shapiro a little turd. Uh, these weren't particularly out of ordinary. I mean, they're a little bit off the wall, but they're not particularly out of ordinary for a college student. But these tweets about her tweets got amplified by Republican politicians like the Arkansas senator, tom cotton who feigned concerns that they showed the ap had pro-palestinian bias and anti-semitism even though wilder is actually jewish and at that point was working in its arizona newsroom nothing to do with, it, with israel or palestine so essentially this was the loudest opponents of so-called cancel culture going out to convince an organization to fire a new journalist for her views which is pretty much the textbook definition of cancel culture so so did she get fired yes So they managed to cancel her. The AP obliged them. They fired Wilder. Wilder has since said there's absolutely no doubt that she was cancelled.
2: And what's the response been to the
0: firing? Uh, It is not very good. There's been, in some quarters, actually real fury from journalists. More than 100 AP journalists signed a letter expressing concern. AP leaders responded with their own statement to staff which basically just fueled the fire. AP is in the business of fact-based journalism, they said. It is who we are. We have those values to ensure we maintain our position as an unbiased source of information.
2: And did they actually uh, say what they'd fired her for?
0: No. So this is an unspecified breach of their social media policy. And the organisation has refused to say what she did wrong, but... The only tweet that people have been able to hone in on that was... Because they said it was something that happened during her tenure, which is only the last month or so. The only one that people have honed in on reads, Objectivity, in quote marks, feels fickle when the basic terms we use to report news implicitly stake a claim. So, for instance, using Israel but never Palestine or war but not siege or occupation are political choices, yet media make those exact choices all the time without being flagged as biased. So... Emily Wilder there was making a point about uh, the problems with so-called objectivity, and that may ironically be the statement that got her fired over her perceived lack of objectivity. And uh, are the waters calm now? They are absolutely not calm. So this has sparked a bit of a a war of the think pieces in the U.S., The, the issue here is it raises that debate about objectivity that Wilder was making a really good point about in that tweet. So her work wasn't her problem. Actually, you know, this was not... The AP was saying, oh, no, there was problems with jeopardising their reputation for fact-based journalism, but there was no criticism that her stories were not fact-based or that they had failed to account for other views. The thing that got her offside with her bosses was expressing her views openly. And, of course, all journalists have views. The fact that they don't express them in public doesn't mean that they vanish or that they don't contribute to their reporting or motivations. Policies like APs are pretty common, but all they do is really mask the public perception of bias rather than stop journalists having biases themselves. And that's really an interesting... Debate, because that has real consequences. It can limit who reports on stuff. We've had situations recently, real situations in the U.S., where at the Washington Post, a victim of sexual assault was told she cannot report on sexual assault because she might be biased because she has personal experience of the story. We've had criticisms about black journalists covering Black Lives Matter because they feel that they have a, a, a predisposed view on this. And, of course, if these people are taken off the case the narratives that come in are, t- are not totally uh, neutral viewpoints no one has a neutral viewpoint all you all that's coming in is you're t- removing the people that have personal experience of these things and you're putting in people that might be more inclined to reinforce or not question or not be antagonistic towards the dominant narrative or the authoritative or the, the narrative of authority
2: and Hayden, you wanted to end with belated coverage for the Samoan election.
0: Yes. So last time, uh, last time we were talking about the Samoan election, it was about how little coverage there been, uh, how things have changed. Uh, this, this. So it was April nine. You might remember this, two of our the election was held on April 9, and two of our biggest media companies didn't actually carry stories on it on their websites for two days. The election happened on a Friday, and it wasn't until Sunday that Stuff and the Herald posted stories about its historic result. At that time, it was a dead heat, 25 all to fast and HRPP, with an independent still to make up his mind. Uh, and at that time, uh, Auckland University academic Patrick Thompson said the lack of coverage showed... Again, that same thing, which narratives are privileged, which narratives are accepted as fact, which narratives uh, are amplified by the media at the expense of others. So this is what he said to me on Media Watch the only people who are covering our communities are ourselves. Um, And so that begs that question around who do we value in this country? That's the wider question that this kind of connects to. I mean, why is it that our journalists don't feel comfortable or don't have connections to Pacific communities, right? There's a bigger question there around, again, the hierarchies that exist in our country. That's Patrick Thompson speaking to me about the lack of election coverage, Samoan election coverage in our media.
2: It's a fast moving situation or slow, whichever way you look at it in some and but now with the locking out of parliament there's talk of treason. But it must be getting the coverage it deserves now. It's everywhere.
0: Yeah, well yes yes and no The New York Times and the Daily Mail have turned their attention to this story, so it's everywhere. Uh, That wasn't enough, though, to get the story onto the front page of the Herald website on Monday, and its absence was noted uh, by the former Pacific Affairs reporter, Michael Field, who tweeted that the lack of coverage showed the Herald has a race problem. But maybe the paper actually took that criticism on board because on Tuesday its entire front page was covered in coverage of the Samoan election. Its editorial mentioned it, and it was also on page two. So, actually, yes, there is really good coverage now. There's Laura Tupo uh, and Michael Mora covering the story for News Hub. RNZ Pacific has been covering the story since the very beginning, and particularly Jamie Tahana has been doing really great coverage. John Campbell at breakfast, uh, he got uh, the first... Uh, interview with Fiamme Naomi Mataafa of Fast after the election and the spin offs the bulletin. Have to shout out the bulletin has regularly led with roundups on the election. So there is there's pretty there's pretty widespread coverage now. After we were complaining about the lack of it on uh, in early April.
2: So do you think it marks a turning point for coverage of Samoa's affairs?
0: Yeah, it's hard to say, but I suspect if there is change, it won't be immediate. So one of the things that I was repeatedly mentioned to me when I was doing that interview with Patrick and I was talking to other people back then is that well. It's hard for our media organisations to comprehensively cover an election in Samoa when they don't necessarily have connections to the wider Samoan and Pacific communities down the road from them. So establishing those connections with the communities just down the road from them, hiring those people into their staff, that would be the biggest difference maker. So that, that diversity of staff is a particularly important thing. Uh, This has echoes of a discussion I had recently with Suzanne McFadden of Newsroom and stuff, Zoe George, and they were talking about women's sport, but they were also talking about, look, all of the people making the editorial decisions in our uh, newsrooms about sport, they're predominantly white men, and probably the same applies here, right, where the people making the decisions... It's not necessarily a conscious bias, but it's, de- it's definitely a bias there. They are informed by perspectives and they don't have the same perspectives as people uh, uh, from the Pacific communities that will be able to bring these stories into the newsrooms.